0: Hey, everybody. Thanks for being here for this episode of Grief is My Side Hustle. I just want to say two things before I introduce you to Shea Wingate, who is an extraordinary survivor of compound loss. She's going to let you know her story. But I wanted to let you know two things. One is we do talk about descriptions of death in here. So if hearing about what bodies look like and those kind of things are triggering for you, just know that that's in there. And also, we had a little glitch in our talk. We, we spent a moment, both of us, talking about how we were both incredibly lucky and privileged to take time off to grieve our parents and that not everybody gets a chance to do that. But recorded, but it was hard to hear because I'm having some internet issues. So I just wanted you to know that that part of the conversation exists. We are not so tone deaf to believe that everybody can just take months off for grieving and it just didn't get recorded. All right, here we go. Meet Shay.
1: Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle, everybody. I am your host, Megan bearden and I'm really delighted today to be here with Shay Wingate, who is a social worker in background Therapist who focuses on grief and loss in Nashville, Tennessee. Shay, thank you so much for being here.
2: Yeah, I'm so glad that you took the time to hear my story and I'm excited to share.
1: Yeah, well, it's, I'm always really grateful when people are willing to take an hour out of their day to talk to us about grief. Cause as my listeners know, I just think everybody who has ever experienced grief, if they could all talk about it more, yeah. we would be able to shift the culture so that all of this would be less hard. And particularly given everything that we have happening, we're losing, you know, a thousand Americans a day still to COVID. So you know, it's a stunning number. We want to be able to shift the culture, but also make room for our own stories personally. And Mm -hmm. so I'd love it if you just tell folks how you come into the world of grief and loss and, Mm -hmm. you know, your personal story, your professional story, just take us in wherever you want to start.
2: Yeah. So I was living in Memphis, Tennessee, where I was born and raised and my boyfriend was from Cincinnati and he was like, let's move up there. And I was like, okay, that will be fun. I was working as a social worker, thought, you know, this is a chance to go move and do something new. So that was in like 2019. So I get it, I'm packing, getting ready to leave. I get a call from my mom and she's like, I don't want you to change your plans. And I'm like, what? (laughs) What happened? What is the news? And she's like, I have ovarian cancer. I remember saying, I'm so sorry you have to tell me that. And I was just like crying on the phone and just not knowing what to say and all that worry at that moment. And I, I hung up and I called my dad and I was like, I had a month left before I moved. And I was like, what should I do? I, I want to get out of this apartment. I want to come home. And he was like, just come home. We'll figure it out. So I like break my lease, <laughs> pack up my stuff in like two days, go home. And it was actually really great. I spent that last month in Memphis, living at home with my parents, and you know, finishing my job, getting ready to move. My mom was like really great. She was like, "You still have to move. You have to go live your life. I'm gonna be fine. Just go live your life." And so, I was like, "Yeah, I'm gonna do that. Like, I'm gonna be back and forth and stuff." But she's saying it's fine. And if anyone could say don't do it, you know, it would be her. Of course, a lot of people were telling me not to move, but yeah, so I, like, I just didn't know what to do. I had, like, quit my job, left my apartment, just, like, okay, I'm gonna just at least give this a try. I can always come back home, and so March 2019, my mom went for her first chemo on the 20th, and my dad took her, and he was having, like, a really hard time with her diagnosis, and just, like, I remember, like, saying to her, like, what's up with dad? Like, at one point, when they had got this, like, the staging of the you know, we thought it was stage four, but it was stage three B, which it was stage four. I mean, but we, I came home like so excited that day, like, oh my gosh, it's stage three B. And dad was like, I was hoping it was a misdiagnosis. And we were like, what? (laughs) Like, he was just so upset by it. And so like in his own kind of like delusional world about it. we were confused at why he wasn't like more present with everything so then he takes her to the first chemo and that was really hard for him and then i was like gonna take my mom to do this like procedure the next day and she's like waking me up in the middle of night and she's like get up get up dad is like kind of hard attack, dad's not breathing and so i me and my brother like go into the room and i mean like i could go into the whole story about like the room was completely white and it's not a white room and like the silence was so loud and like my dad's face was like purple. And like, you know, it was just like, so heightened, such a trauma yeah. moment. And, you know, like we got him on the ground and tried to CPR and stuff and the ambulance came and I rode with him to the hospital and they're trying to do all this stuff. And it, and my brother and mom get there because they came later. Cause my mom like needs to be in a wheelchair and he had died. And I was like, that was Thursday and I was moving Saturday and we were like, what like what the heck like we need you where Um, where are you going like what like why why did this happen right now and it was just it was it was so shocking of course I like pushed back the move and you know I was 26 at the time so it was like none of my friends knew what to say or could relate at all and I ended up moving and getting a job and no one knew me in the city and you know no one knew I was going through it was in some ways it was like the worst thing to do but in some ways it was the best thing to do because like if I had stayed I think my life would have been just like obsessed with like caring for my mom but like when I had to have space I had to like live a life and there was time for me to take care of me a little bit
0: Um,
2: and one of my other brothers took FMLA and like lived with my mom for a long time and everybody was great. And we spent so many weekends like back and forth. I actually didn't work full time for a while, just so I could be there. And so a couple months after dad died, we got this like notice from like the hospital that they were stopping her treatment because she wasn't responding. And they were going to put her on hospice. And we were like, what? Like we no, like you can't like give up. And there was a couple of weeks of like not knowing what to do and like really scared and like should I quit my job and move home and spend that time with mom and she ended up going to a different doctor who ended up changing her diet and treating her and she lived for another year but you know like it was stage four ovarian cancer basically like it wasn't good news so you know after that like things kind of settled down and we like like talked and she did her treatment this new doctor seemed really positive and Like she really liked him and she felt like my dad didn't like the other doctor. So she was like, it's a sign that like, I'm with this doctor and this is going to be okay. And my mom was so positive. So we were all like, okay, we're going to do this. And then January, 2020, my sister who was 38 died in her home, like suddenly. And my brother-in-law found her and my mom calls me at work. And she's like, Karen died last night. You need to come home. And I'm like, are you serious? Like what is going on? And I it just, was just there for Christmas. Like i just seen them in December and everything was fine. And she ended up like hitting her head and like choking and dying like that. But it was like so crazy that my 38 year old beautiful sister like d- just died. Like how does that happen? You know, and like my brother-in-law was like, she didn't come to bed last night, but I thought she was, like, up doing stuff, she was up doing laundry, and I didn't think anything of it, like, she was a night owl, and we were just in shock, and my mom was so bad at that point, like, I remember coming home being, like, she's, like, she's done, you know, like, she lost so much, and she sold our house, and, like, closed my dad's business, and like, you know, done the funerals with both of them, and got, like, gotten so much bad news of her own, it was, like, she was like, I don't think I can keep doing that. Yeah. yeah. So it was really bad. And she, like, I laugh because I'm like, this story is like crazy. And it's almost like, I felt like it like feels good to say it, but it's almost like I reeked of grief. I reeked of tragedy. I oh
0: my God.
2: All away from me. Like, ugh. like one of my friends said, she, her brother had died and she's like, when you told me your dad died, I felt like I could relate to you. But then when you told me your sister died and your mom died, I like, didn't know what to say. It was oh. just like, even the grievers can't relate to me. Great. Like, <laughs> what the? look,
1: I mean, that story I have been doing grief and loss for 20 years. I would feel daunted by that story. That is a lot yeah. for it's one such human. Such a
2: short time. Yeah. And so like, so that was January of 2020. And then March mom is like, we're done doing treatment. Like I'm, I'm done. Like it's over. It's not helping. It's not working. And then the world shut down. Like the pandemic happened. I was working at a school and they decided to like shut down the school. So I didn't even tell my employers. I just went home and like worked remotely. We all like kind of worked remotely in my mom's apartment. I don't know why we didn't tell anyone. I didn't want to have to go back to Ohio. So I was just like doing it. And it was so funny. I was like on telehealth with kids, like doing therapy and then like going and helping my mom. And it was just so surreal. And then like watching CNN's coverage of the Mm -hmm. virus, but she got to do hospice at home. She died at home, April 3rd, 2020. And then I like went back to Ohio and like in a trance, like worked until September. And then we moved to Tennessee and I just took like eight months off work. And that's where the grief like finally all caught up to me because I had been not able to deal with it because mom was sick. So you can't like grieve when you're caring for someone and hearing their news. And, you know, actually I was grieving her the whole time. I feel like that moment I got the call.
1: Well, you have so many examples of different iterations of grief all compounded, right? So I think about the fact that death is a trauma. And so we have the body response, the trauma causes, which is the, all the things that happen in our neurology to sort of protect us and buoy us from going mm-hmm. under with all the loss. You have your mom's diagnosis which is a heavy diagnosis, right? Anybody who hears ovarian cancer, most of us have some understanding that that is not an easy one. My dad who died of cancer, he had small cell and you could see when you said that, people understood, but you can see it. And then your dad dies suddenly in this, truly traumatic way. And I appreciate, and I want to point out for the folks that are listening, what a nice job you did of sort of giving us a flyover of that experience, right? Like room was white. You give us a couple of details and that's so important with trauma that we don't activate the memories every single day, all the time. It can make our minds sick, but we know them and they're there. And usually we have to do some work around them. And then this story of your sister who's young and healthy, essentially having an accident in her home and dying. Mm-hmm. Then finally, what we may be expected that you can, what I always say is I participated in my father's death because mm-hmm. I was I was there and I could dip in and out of feelings and I could talk to him about it and I could make decisions and be helpful, but the others are things that happen suddenly. Yeah. And that is an unbelievable amount of loss. Mm-hmm. And I think
2: you're right, the different ways, like the grief, the long grief with mom, the sudden grief, and I was there with dad, and then like the hearing the news and not being there with Karen, I think that was really hard for me because I had seen dad die, I was there, he wasn't alone, and so it was really important for me to see her body before she was cremated, and nobody wanted to But I did, and I like pushed for it. And I knew I was like upsetting everyone, but I was like, this, we have to see This sounds crazy, but I was like, I don't want her to be alone. Like, I don't want her to not be seen by us. Mm -hmm. I don't know if she like knows that we see her or anything, but I was like, we need to see her body. That needs to happen. And we did, and it was great. I'm so glad we did that. And I think everyone was glad too, even though it was hard, it makes it real. And I think I needed to make it real.
1: One of the things I talk to grievers a lot about is just what do your instincts say? What do you want to do, right? And and you just said it seemed crazy. It doesn't seem crazy at all. It just seems like something that your system needed in order to let a certain kind of energy land. And I'm in the middle of a memoir I've been writing about PTSD that I had after my mom died suddenly, and as I'm writing sort of across my story, I can see things where it's like, actually my instinct knew I needed this and I didn't do it. Mm
0: -hmm. And then
1: I can look at, you know, the suffering that comes after that. Mm -hmm. And right. So I can look at it and say like, yeah, you know what? It never works to go against your instincts. But again, because we have so little actual core educations, people don't talk about it. Um, They don't talk about it because there's this ethos that we can't handle it we need to be able to say, actually, some people really need to see the bodies of their dead loved ones, that that's not morbid. That's actually human. And Mm -hmm. that that can help the grief and loss process through particularly actually for children too. So, you know, to be able to say, I understood, and I have five brothers and sisters and some of us wanted to do that. And some of us didn't. Um. And again, there's no right or wrong, but being able to sort of have an understanding of what it is that you need. The other thing that I, That is just crushing in your story is the, you know, you're really young to have this much loss. You know, developmentally, we all expect to have loss.
2: Yeah.
1: But you're out of step with your peers. And if you look at this developmentally, like I have a master's degree in child development. So I always look sort of like, what are the stages of life and what are we supposed to be doing? And at 26, you're kind of launching out into your own life. You're leaving. Your parents' nest and you're finding your friends and your people and your you know partners and your job and you're trying to build your own nest somewhere and what happens in your nest is it like gets shelled yeah. it gets destroyed in this way that you know it, it's really stunning and I think if we look at TV shows like Friends and Sex in the City and all that stuff what they're what they're selling you is everybody's in the same boat and what <laughs> your story is there's not a single other human that you know it yeah. boat like yours
2: right and even the ones you know like my brothers like they're still in a different boat like they lost the same people but they are still in a different boat and I think I'm in the south and my boyfriend and I bought a house together and it's like I'm 29 he's 33 so people are like when are you guys getting married and you have a house together and I'm like we've been planning funerals I don't I'm not doing that right now. That's not even on my list, but like, that's what everyone else around me is doing. And people expect you to yeah,
1: do. And we like happy and we like joyful and we yeah. like please. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And it's like very like traditional, I guess, to be this way. And I'm just like, well, I, yeah, I would have liked to, I guess have done that, but I'm not, I'm not doing that. And I think When my mom sold our house, that was really hard for me because I, I remember like saying in the beginning, like, I'll go and try this thing in Ohio. And if it doesn't work, I can come back. But like when my parents sold the house, my mom sold the house, it was like, wait, where am I going to go to when I fall on my face in the world? You know, even though it was just a house, like that was really hard for me. Like that was another kind of loss of like a symbol of like protect you and Now, when I go to Memphis, like we stay in a hotel, I never would have dreamed that I would visit my hometown and stay in a hotel. I mean, I probably could stay with someone, but it's just like, we Uh,
1: that, that lands with me so heavy because again, I think there's the thing that everybody knows, which is, oh my God, you lost your relatives. You lost your parents. You lost your sister. And they're dead and like that. And what is that like? And how people, you know, at varying degrees know how to show up for that. But part Mm -hmm. of what you're talking about is the mother load of secondary loss that happens. We have all these words and grief and loss about what those things are. Yeah, you know what? When you get married, your parents aren't going to be there. So there's other loss that is associated with the developmental stages in your life. And that never ends, right? Like we know this grief doesn't end, but you're talking about a concrete loss, which is like another kind of death, which is I don't get to be in my life the way that I was in my life, the way some people, you know, they're going back when they're in their sixties and cleaning out their closets because their parents are in their nineties and they want to move, my siblings and I, because of COVID it was, you know, varying degrees, but my parents had a home that really, you know, it's the only, it's the, even more so than my own homes that I have lived in, because I'm older than you are. I've bought a bunch of homes and been married a while. My parents' home had had a space in my heart that no other home has ever had. And it has been brutal. What it felt like to me was like, I used to do plays when I was in high school. And then at the end, the cast like pulls apart the set you know, you put all this stuff, that's what it feels like. It feels like this whole stage that was their life, you're pulling it apart. And by the time you're done, their life has nowhere to live. When we sold our house, I said to my brother, like, I don't know where the memories of them are going to live in my mind if they, if we don't have this house. And interestingly, I can just say they still live in the house. The memories of my parents still live in the house, even though we don't own the house. I have friends in that town. Mm-hmm. People are, when I explained to really close family friends that we had sold the house, they gave us hugs and, you know, it was emotional. And then we were leaving and they were like, okay, we'll see you soon. And I was like, we don't live here anymore. We're not going to see, like, that's why you're saying goodbye. It was like hard for everybody. So yeah. I really just appreciate that you are talking about the hardness of this. And what I want to say to people is we can have lots of judgment and feelings about that. But sometimes the loss of that home and that space and that place feels harder than the loss of my dad. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're harder. And when you have multiple that are sort of threaded together, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I think, I think people hold some energy, particularly around compound loss that like one feels harder than the other at different times, or one impacts me more because, you know, I always say this about my mom and dad. I talked to my mom every day. I didn't talk to my dad every day. Right. Right. So that's part of the reason I feel the loss of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, know, you made this gorgeous comment about your, about your brother, you know, and, and I think you and I understand this, all grievers understand this, which is, it doesn't matter if you have siblings, they lost their person and you lost your person.
2: Yeah. Right. Totally. Yeah. And I have two brothers and so they both, I feel like had just different relationships. Like, I feel like I was closer to my parents while they were like closer to my sister one of my brothers lived down the street from her and then my other brother they talked on the phone a lot it was just like something they did and so like I have to remember like that was like a more like a less complicated relationship for them Whereas like with my parents I'm the youngest and I was around them like a lot more I think they probably chilled out by the time I was around them (laughs) for me it was it wasn't as complicated with my brothers it was a little more complicated so like yeah it's different even though of course they're sad about my parents dying and I think sometimes for them it's like they miss Karen a lot more and for me like I talk to my mom every day wow. and I miss her a lot and not to say I don't miss my dad or my sister I just mom and I just talked all the time like you were saying
1: yeah. And I think again, I, I, you know, we're not disrespecting anybody's memories. We're not saying one thing is harder than the other, but I've worked with lots of people who, you know, lost multiple family members in a car accident or house fire or whatever. And you know, you're losing multiple things and each one of those things, you have a different relationship. And so being able to just be clear with yourself about what is it that feels so hard Mm -hmm. and then how do I support myself? So can you tell us a little bit about after you're not in the foxhole so much? We know my listeners know too, that there's neuroscience around the fact that like your body really is sending all of this adrenaline and all of this stuff so that you will function. Yeah. And in the functioning, you're not doing a lot of feeling, you know, you're doing all the things that need to be done, but at some point the body says, okay, we don't need all this adrenaline. We don't need all these protective neurochemicals. You can just be in life now. And then all those memories and all those experiences come flooding in and most of us go down for a little while. So you said you took a lot of time off. I also took six months after my mom died, but I think I would tell you I took, I think I'm still in it. I mean, I think I would tell you I took two two and a half years of, of renegotiating how I spend my energy. So tell us a little bit about like, what resources did you find? What were, and, and by the way, you know, I'm really clear with my I put on 40 pounds in grieving my mom and dad, like my expectation isn't that we all do all of our things healthy. (laughs) A lot of, you know, I had a guy a long time ago on the podcast who he lost a child and he was drunk for 10 years and less and release. That makes perfect sense. So can you just tell us how did you manage? How are you managing? That's really what.
2: So I, like I said, in April, 2020, I just went back and was on autopilot, like, We were actually living with a family friend in um, Ohio. That was actually helpful for me in a way because there was people around, even though it was like COVID and things were locked down. Like this family had like this beautiful yard, and people would come over and like just visit and stuff. So it was helpful for me to have. At the time, I was sometimes like, "Oh my gosh, can everyone just like leave?" But it was helpful because I had to get up and like put on clothes and come downstairs and be like, "Hi." So in a way, it was it was helpful for me. If I had been by myself, I probably would have just slept and like done anything. But then after that, when we moved back to Tennessee in September, I was really tired. And so I decided not to work. I just like did whatever I needed to do that day. I had a lot of friends here. So I'd go and have lunch with them. I would talk with them. I would like watch TV. I would not get up. I would go through my mom's things slowly. I would see my brother. I would just do nothing. And I think that was a little hard for me because grief is outside of capitalism. You're like, what am I doing? How do I do this? Let me make this like profitable. Let me make, let me like do something about this. But like, I just needed the time. And I felt like I had to prove to people that I was, it was okay that I was taking off work and no one was even asking me, but like, I did something today. Like I remember before my partner would come home, I would like clean really quick and be like, Oh, I've been cleaning all day. And I clean for like 15 minutes (laughs) and I needed to say that I had done something. And I also did therapy and I did a grief support group and my Mm -hmm. therapist was like, you are doing something you were grieving. And so I think that was really helpful for me, but I really wanted to prove to other people that I was doing
1: something. (laughs) Well, and I think there's this pressure, right? It all sort of goes back to the five stages of grief, which are this like garbage bullshit that was well-intended that is not, is so inaccurate. And I don't know if you've seen that, but there's a TV show that's coming out about women who are all grieving and it's based on the five stages of grief. I literally hit my head against the counter. Cause I was like, why are we doing this to the world over and over and over again? Why the, are we insisting on yeah. what happens? I mean, and we internalize it ourselves and I understand I couldn't demonstrate to anyone that I was doing anything. So I mostly hid people. I mean, I was such a good hider. People would be like, Hey, do you want to get together tomorrow? I'd be like, yeah, it sounds great. Knowing full well, I was not going to see them. And then I would just cancel about 20 minutes out of time and be like, oh, you know, I'm really not, I don't think I'm up to it. I I mean, I thought I was being really sneaky. My people were like, no, we knew what you were doing. You were sneaky, we understood. But I think we want to demonstrate to ourselves and others that we are progressing across grief, right? If we can really accept and internalize that that is not the deal. Like it is not a ladder to climb or a timeline to go across that anyone who has ever grieved over time is going to tell you like your seven was inexplicably hard that that doesn't mean you're failing at grief mm-hmm. but, but that instead whatever the process is, if we're doing it instinctively and intuitively, that's mm-hmm. grief work. You have a, an interesting yeah. way of talking about the energy of grief. Will you share your metaphor and all of that with our listeners? Because I think it's really gorgeous. Yeah.
2: And I will say to your in, like instinct thing, I knew when I would be ready to work again. I didn't know how I knew or when it would be, but I said to myself and out loud, like, I'll know when it's time to go back. And then one day I just knew, like, I'm feeling like I can go back. And I and like, I describe grief as like gas or like air inside your body. It's like taking up space and it's like pressure and it's like filling you up, but you can't grab on it. Like you can't hold it. You can't like, sometimes you can't put words to it. You can't like explain it. People may not see it, but you feel it and it's there in your body pressure space. And so what I needed to do was like help it solidify. Yeah into like a solid that I could hold. Because I believe if you can't hold something, you can't look at it and process it and then begin to say, okay, I'm gonna place it here or I'm gonna let it go or I'm gonna just know it. So that for me, like the smoke, the gas, the grief swirling around in my head and my body, like I felt tired all the time. I felt like it was so hard for me to go to the grocery store. I was 28 years old, not doing anything and i would like cry before i had to leave the house like but it so it's i knew what it all was but like telling someone that was kind of hard and so that's i think of it as like a gas in your body that other people forget about and they don't see you know they just maybe see you trying to put on a good face or whatever but the griever needs to understand that and for me that meant give it space and then over time it solidified. And if I had fought it, can you imagine like fighting gas? Like you can't fight it. Like you don't even know where it's at. You're just wearing yourself out, trying to punch it and pin it down. Like you just can't.
1: I love that metaphor. I mean, I love metaphors in general. I know sometimes people get like possessive or like, no, it's more like this or it's more like that. And again, I sort of feel like, listen, if everyone tells their grief story, we're still going to need everyone else to tell their grief story. And if yeah. everyone has the perfect metaphor, we're still going to need every other metaphor. But what I like about that a lot is the notion of sort of like the gas is diffuse across your body, because a lot of what I talk to clients about and, and talk about in my writing workshop is just giving people you know, the generalized description of what happens to the body in trauma, Mm -hmm. right? In all traumas, many traumas, but, but also just being able to say grief is a trauma. And when you're exhausted, it's because your body has been through a trauma. Mm -hmm. So being able to point to and say, this part of the brain does this. So when people write in and say, I have no memories whatsoever, I mean, I would sat with my mom after my dad died and she'd be like, and then what happened? And then she'd say, why can't I remember? And I'm like, mom, I can, I can tell you why Your are your hippocampus, you're, you know, being, being able to really say you're, this is not something you're failing at and your description, which is no, no, I'm going to know when that lifts. Mm-hmm. I think it's less important that we all know exactly all of the words and that it's more important that we understand that there is a process. And so the fact that with trauma, there is this depressive process Mm
2: -hmm.
1: that causes brain fog and confusion and exhaustion. If you were to look at that and say, depression is not a problem, it's a system. And it's a system that your body brings in to keep your energy low. and and allow you to heal so that when people go and have a regular surgery, their body goes into a depression because it wouldn't be good for you to get up and try to go running. You know, you need to conserve your energy and depression lifts. It just does. And so we, we diagnostically talk about grief differently and we give it different parameters and we do the, none of that really matters to the average person. The average person just exactly as you described, which is the energy is what it is. It doesn't matter if I'm trying to fight it. Doesn't matter how people feel about it. Yeah. It is what it is. And, and the other thing that I think about is that we have these typical ways of behaving our emotions that are typical, I'm usually a little silly. Like I have a nine-year-old, you know, by 5.30 at night, he's like a little hyper every single day. Right. And I always imagine that there are these little matchbox cars of emotions that are like zipping up and down your vagus nerve, right. Just sort of like they are, some people have hyperactivity, other people don't. When grief comes on, it's like a 16 wheeler that was never there before and is there, and the rest of the cars have to figure out how to deal with this mm-hmm. sort of erratic driver. Right. And the whole system is gonna have some trouble
0: mm-hmm. and then they're gonna get it.
1: They're gonna get it. And that truck will never not be part of the traffic in your life but for the rest we'll, of your life.
2: We'll learn to navigate it and deal yeah. with it. Yeah,
1: yeah. Can you talk a little bit about just what it was like to have this happen in your mid twenties and who and how the resources came to you. And maybe even, you know, I certainly know, and I'm vocal about like, you know, even though it's more common in my age group, not all my friendships have made it
2: mm-hmm.
1: because a lot of how I experienced my, ang- my grief was an anger.
0: Oh. I
1: don't think I'm a great friend. And I, a lot of how I used to be beforehand. I had a lot of like extra energy to help people
0: mm-hmm. and
1: offer. And I don't have that anymore. I don't have extra. And so I mm-hmm. keep it to myself.
2: Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think grief rearranges things.
0: Yeah. 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 yeah.
2: But like I said, like I reeked of grief and I knew, I knew I did. I could see people yeah. pull away. I barely told my whole story. I would say in Little bits, or like brush over it, or I just didn't like. I remember saying at the grief group, like you would go around and you say your name and who who died, and I was like Shay, mom, dad, and sister, and the whole group was like, oh, even at the grief group, I'm this weirdo. I was kind of annoyed, but like it was true that it was different. So I, like I said, I took the time off. I felt my feelings. I had some people who understood grief who really helped me and I talked to them a lot amazingly at people who had not really been through loss who were great who talked to me. I had a friend who called me like every Monday and we talked and I remember
0: she hadn't
2: really experienced grief at this level, but I was telling her about like how upset I was that I lost this sock that mom had given me and because there would be no more presents, no more memories, Mm -hmm. no more new things. And she said, we're gonna spend the rest of our lives talking about the memories that you have. I was just like, yes, like that's what I need. Why can everyone say that? How does she know how to say that? Yeah. Um, But, you know, that was just an amazing friend. I read Julia Samuel's Griefworks book. That really is oh, so amazing.
1: great. She's really awesome. perfect. For people yeah. who don't know about Julia Samuel's, and if you follow me, you should, because I was on her Instagram a while back, but she also has a Griefworks app.
0: Mm-hmm. which I do yeah.
1: almost every day. It has meditations. It's really inexpensive. And if you can't afford it, actually, she'll give it to you for free. And her Instagram, man, every single day, that woman is, yeah. is offering tools and, and she, she was really good friends with princess Diana. So she yeah. comes to her grief, but that book is mm-hmm. God, it's a good one. That was a, a
2: good one. one. Cause I'm a therapist and like, it helped me from seeing her perspective. And then like, I could see myself in the stories and so I learned really quickly that grief healing was like through stories and like Mm -hmm. I could find myself in other people's stories and then I could tell my story and feel healed so that was the process of making the gas solid like telling my story talking about it people who wanted to hear pulling away from the people who were telling me to just be positive or don't be sad or you know like you should move back to Tennessee like just Pulling away.
1: pulling away not punching them in the throat because um, oof, boy in the early days I have a very quick tongue and I my feeling was like I'm the one in pain you're the one saying something stupid I'm gonna shift the pain from me to you which is <laughs> maybe not awesome but often yeah. you know, it went down
2: I think I I mean I like think back to some of the things that I did and said and like the uh, like yeah. I think and me and my partner talk about this. That like in my grief, I like became like a little kid. Yeah, this is how I dealt with it. Well, I think because my sister was like ten years older than me, so she was like almost like a aunt. Like she would like do my hair for like dance recitals, yeah. like help me with homework. And like her, my mom and dad were like always at our house celebrating things together. And when I lost all that stuff, it was like I would lost a bit of my childhood and like my safety. Totally. So I this is a little embarrassing to say, but like I would like. Regress like I would like baby talk. I would just do like these like babyish things, and my like partner was like, "I'm like with this like little kid all of a sudden," and I don't know. I just I would like kind of get no like this way like it's my way like pout and like throw tantrum. A
1: tantrum. Yeah. yeah, like
2: little kid. So, but having a place to do those things, I think, was helpful. Having the time to stop and to express those emotions like read those stories listen to those podcasts like tell my story really helped i did therapy i did a group you know they were helpful in ways but i think the incorporating it into my life was helpful when people come to my house i sh- there's pictures of my parents and my sister i say this was mom's table even if they're not comfortable with it or didn't know my family and like this was my dad painted that for me like this picture of my sister i think that's really something that i i still do i pushed it a lot in the beginning like let me talk about them all the time but i i don't care like this is my house is just like you're coming over this i'm going to talk about all this stuff i
1: couldn't i couldn't help it in the beginning i mean in the beginning i'd be like standing in starbucks and someone would be like how are you and i'd be like my mom just died you know i just like <laughs> couldn't even though I could sometimes see it on people's faces that yeah. you have got to not do what you're doing. I just couldn't. Yeah. And I think about that. And I, I like your image of the gas because I just sort of feel like I was surrounded by it. You know, sure. it was like inside me and it was coming out and I just couldn't. Yeah. yeah. And I didn't want to, I, I really didn't want to. I mean, probably partly because I, I don't know that I could have, but I really wanted that experience validated by everyone on the planet. And that's something that you hear from grievers is they looked out into the world and the world was normal. And it was so offensive that the world was being normal when like, didn't they know how could it be? I love how you just sort of said it, which is like grief was helpful and therapy was helpful, but like maybe other things were more helpful. And, you know, that that's grief grief is a part of your whole life. It's not like a problem that you're, or, you know, you're trying to make a decision about a job. It's not a discrete event. So therapy is helpful and group is helpful, but like, really you got to figure out how to spread it across Mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. What I think about a lot is, you know, this concept of like, how am I showing up for grief? What is it that I need validated? And I ask that of my clients, like, what do you, in the energy that you have, let's say that gas that's there, what is the, what is the emotional need right now today? And it might shift we have, we have some data that emotions kind of shift every three hours. So when I'm talking to people who are going through anything hard, what I say is try not to make plans more than three hours out because everything might shift and change. So, you know, you can say, yes, I'll come to dinner tonight, but just also I might cancel because three Mm -hmm. hours from now I might feel really differently, but I love being able to ask people, what do you need Is it that you're angry? Is it that you're sad? Is it that you feel alone? Is it that because the alone component that makes people feel really panicky is one that I think we don't identify very well because there's people all around me. There's people knocking on my door all the time. And because existentially, it's really hard to hold. It's really hard to lose both your parents and feel like, wow, that whole backup that I used to have and your older sister, who's like, you know, an aunt, Mm -hmm. it's like the whole thing behind me is gone Mm -hmm. and it's scary and it's anxiety provoking. So I'm just curious for you, in early grief for you, or even now, what is it that like, do do you need or, or consistently want or desire to be validated. Sometimes people want it to be like, I want you to know that my mom was this kind of a person. Mm -hmm. And in my, I don't really care if anybody knows anything about my parents. I love hearing stories about them, but I'm not here to teach you about them. I, what I want people to know is that mine is stormy, that Mm -hmm. I'm totally fine today, right Mm -hmm. now, but in two hours, I might not be able to get through a conversation without my voice cracking.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that question. I've never been asked that. I think that would have like destroyed me <laughs> a year ago to be asked because I needed that question yeah, so much. Yeah. I mean, I still do, but like, I, I wanted to be validated. Yeah. I wanted to be seen. I wanted people to want to talk to me about it. I wanted people to remember. I hated when people like moved on or stopped talking about it. I remember when we were in Ohio living with that family and they were so great. But like, I, it was Father's Day and I, we spent Father's Day with them and no one said anything about my dad. And later I said to Tim, I was like, no one said anything about my dad. He's like, they asked about you. And I was like, no, they didn't. He's like, they asked me about you. And I was like, what do you know? Like, ask me. But I mean, I get it. Like, you know, they they didn't want to make me upset or they didn't know what to say or whatever. But I wanted people to ask me, I talk about grief languages a lot. And my grief language is I want to dive in, feel it, remember, talk about it, cry, and then we can move on. I hate the, we're not going to talk about it, or I'm going to ask how you're doing from someone else. Like, I want them to be acknowledged. I want my grief to be acknowledged. Like, I want every toast to be like, and remember Heidi Edison and Karen, (laughs) you know, but I mean, of course it's not like that. And I try to pull that back sometimes, but when I feel safe, I talk about them and and I wish that I could have that more.
1: I would hazard this because even before I had my own, you know, traumatic grief and experiences, grief has sort of been across my life since I was a child. And I think what you just said is true of everyone. I would be really comfortable going out on a, on a circuit and being like, everyone wants their grief to be validated. Everyone wants you to ask them if they don't want to talk about it right now. They'll let you know. They'll let you know. They're going to shut that shit down so fast. (laughs) But when I was like 32 or something, I had a miscarriage and it was pretty late in the early stages of pregnancy. And I was just like beyond devastated. It was the worst thing that had happened to me at the time. And my younger sister called and, you know, a lot of people sent texts, a lot of people sent emails but my younger sister called the second she heard. And she was like, look, I just figured you already feel as bad as you possibly could. So I wasn't going to make you feel worse. And I think about that a lot, which is like, you're people, you're not going to make me feel or remember that this thing, terrible thing had happened. What you might do is interrupt a a state where like, oh, I just wasn't in that feeling for a moment.
2: But take me there. Like, I want to be there. That's my connection with them. Like, bring up, say their names, like, talk about the, like, Mm -hmm. I'm ready to go there at any moment. I'm just waiting for the invitation. And I go there so much by myself. And that's fine. I know there's places in grief, you go by yourself. But I would love for someone to be like, I thought about your mom today. Those are the Uh,
1: best. And that, you know, again, I think universally being able to share pictures and stories that people might not otherwise know. I mean, the thing that destroys me the most, but Is the thing I want the most is when my parents' friends call me, which happens, you know, once every three or four months, my mother's best friend will call or this uh, monsignor that she was close to, or just recently, someone who was more a friend of my dad's left me a voicemail. I went down for days. Mm -hmm. I was brokenhearted for days, but not in a bad way. Right. Like I am brokenhearted and to have someone reach out because they were thinking about my dad and they love my dad is like sliding over on a couch Mm -hmm. so that I can come and sit down next to you and we can be like, oh my God, we loved this person. And this was so important to us. So, you know, for people that are, are really trying to support grievers. Mm -hmm. And I do think there are some folks that even though they've never had a really terrible loss, they just know how to do it. And I think there are people who are struggling and what I, what I often say, and I say it every time I give a lecture is listen, it is, be, we are beholden to living in this day and age. Everybody should be listening to a podcast, picking up a book and talking to someone Yeah. when you were grieving, what worked for you? What was helpful? And I love to give those examples. Lots of people send flowers. And what I ask is how does it feel to send flowers? Like, do you like sending flowers or does that sort of feel like you're wasting your money to try to say, I love you? What would be a more authentic way of saying I love you? Like send cinnamon buns, go, you know, say I had a friend, a really good friend. I saw her this weekend. And when my I think it was my dad died the way I was when my dad died when my dad died she was like okay I'm coming to the funeral and I was like you know what could
0: you not
1: I knew getting away from her family was going to be really hard I was like can you in a couple of weeks meet me at a hotel and we can have a massage and what she has said to me since then is that's something she offers would you like me to come to the funeral or would you rather me set up a weekend for just the two of us I love that That right yeah I love that So it's asking around, and I think it should feel satisfying to you. If you feel awkward trying to show up for someone else, Mm -hmm. you may be headed down someone else's belief about what is supposed to happen. Mm -hmm. Ask other people who have grieved. Mm -hmm. What helped you, and then see what feels like, oh, that's the kind of thing I wanna do, right? Yeah. Like, if you and I were gonna plan a vacation, you might say, I wanna to go to Antarctica and I might wanna to go to Mexico. That doesn't make it wrong. It's just like your energy wants to go explore the Arctic and I want to go be warm with a Mai Tai. Mm-hmm. Grief and loss is kind of the same.
2: Right. Everyone is, it's such a hard thing because, like, I'm a grief and loss therapist now, and I had a client tell me that she hates when people say like, I'm sorry that your dad died. And I never would have expected someone to to me. So like, I've learned that it's so different, but like everyone has their own grief language. If you spend 10 minutes with them, you will know it. I swear, yeah. Like ask a few questions, say a few things. They will show you really quickly, even if they don't know what it is. And then, and then do that for them. Like if you, if you can tell that they like going on walks, then Just come over and go on walks with them. If you can tell they like sitting and talking because they won't stop talking, then like sit and listen. You know, they will show you what they need. The problem is people send texts or whatever, or they ask someone else how you're doing. They're just scared. To be
1: around your grief. Yeah. And they're scared and, and partly because it feels awkward. And what I say is there's a lot of stuff in life that feels awkward. Your first day yeah. of work feels awkward. The first time you kiss your boyfriend or your girlfriend feels awkward. Like the, when you're standing in line and someone is speaking in a language that you don't know, and they want you to understand them. That feels there's a million awkward things that happen right. in our lives that we have to figure out a way to the other side. And if you, in your own energy can feel like, no, I kind of understand how I want to feel as a supporter. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to be someone who feels like, Oh, I know how to ask. And so on my website, I have these questions, which are like, just pick which question makes you the most comfortable. I really like asking the question, which is kind of the validation question, which is saying to somebody, what has been the thing that's been really surprisingly helpful, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Or who Mm-hmm. who's who's been a person that's really surprised you by being there for you mm-hmm. and then they answer well they've taken me to play tennis and now you know
2: yeah you know, and it lands better
1: football.
2: you feel like comfortable doing that thing it lands better you know like if you feel awkward if you're not a good talker like and it, it's just going to be awkward so like if you feel like the thing that you're doing is comfortable then it's going to be received in a way that, like, is more genuine. And I'll tell you something. Like, I'm a grief therapist. When I'm with my clients in session, it's good. I know them. But when someone tells me, like, so and so died or something, I still am like a little bit awkward because oh my I god, me too. That people don't know what to say. Like, I know that everybody wants something so different. So, like, I do this for a living, and it's still awkward.
1: I God, I love the fact that you brought that up. And I used to say that more. And you're reminding me to say it again, which is literally all I do all day long is talk about grief and loss. And there are elements that are so hot, meaning the topic of how someone goes through a loss is so uncomfortable that I'm like, yep, I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to call them. I don't want to talk to them. That Mm -hmm. is really Mm -hmm. awful. And that doesn't make me a terrible person. It makes me a human. And, you know, again, the energy is tough. And so it's not like, just because I've had my own experiences, I get to skip over mm-hmm. the tough yeah. energy. I love that you said that. That's exactly. Right. And,
2: and like knowing how, like how personal it is, like, like, so our, our neighbor, his brother died and I don't know him that well. I'm getting to know him. And so my instinct was to be like, well, tell me how he died. Like, tell me his name. Like, I want to hear the story, but like, this is my neighbor. Like, maybe he doesn't want that. So like you know, I tried to, what was his name? What happened? Like, I'm, I'm so sorry that he died. And then he kind of told me, like, he moved on to something else. So like, he kind of told me, like, he didn't want that. So then like, I brought over cookies on like his birthday, his brother's birthday. And he really liked that. And he was like, Oh, these were so good. Like, thank you so much. It's been a hard day. So it's like, okay, well, like, that took what a little bit of time, but I figured it out. So, you know, this is not a
1: popular opinion, but it is my opinion. And I'm in the, well, I'm finishing my memoirs that has to get finished first, but I have a lot of articles that are, that sort of say this, which is, I do actually believe that as grievers, we have to teach people how to show up for us. And I know that really super sucks. Mm-hmm. but it's not all that different than when your aunt Sally at Thanksgiving is like, Oh, are you getting a job soon? And you don't want to be asked about a job, even though it, you don't want to be asked about it because like you thought you were getting a job and you feel really vulnerable about it. You know, the grief boundary stuff is really real. And if we were, wow, well, we're not grieving. If we were all taking a class just about this process that we're all going to end up in at some day, to sort of be able to say, listen, when you're the one that's in grief, mm-hmm. there are gonna be some people that show up with the best of intentions. Mm-hmm. And they're gonna get it wrong. Mm-hmm. And what will happen if you don't set a boundary is you will pull away and there will be damage done to the relationship. And okay. those people will not know why. Yeah. Because yeah. they're gonna think they did a good job. But if they step on your foot, you gotta tell them. So and lots of my listeners know this, but when my mom died, she was, my mom's super religious. And so instantly everything that everyone said was she's up in heaven with your dad. And I don't have a problem with that now, but when, and I, and again, everyone should be able to believe whatever they believe, but they were saying that to make me feel better. And it made me feel white hot rage because I would love to believe my mother is in heaven and I don't. And so when they were like, oh, well, this is this thing that I get to believe. And it makes me feel better. I was always like, fuck you. And you're feeling better. Like, don't, don't like wave your way of feeling better at me. Cause it makes me feel worse. And these are, t- I'm talking little old ladies, like 80 year old ladies with gray hair. And <laughs> I say to them, I know you are saying that with love that, <laughs> that actually doesn't work for me do you have any stories that you can tell me about your mom? And only one of them was like, well, you need to pray harder and find Jesus. And I was like, okay, well now we know each other and I'm not talking to you anymore. Yeah. But for the most part, people were like, Oh, I'm so sorry. That must be so hard. Yeah. And I think, you know, what happens a lot and I get a lot of these DMS and I'm sure you get this too, where people are like, is there a list? Can you give me And then because there are some folks out there with lists. And so I'll yeah. say really want a list. Here, Megan Devine has a great like back of her book and it's okay. You're not okay. And I, that list, you know, her book is great. The thing about a list is you're going to find people who are like, no, I love that. You know, I know other people who are like, oh my God, it was so meaningful to me when people reminded me that my mother was in heaven. So like we, you and I cannot say, don't say those things.
2: I know. Right. Well, it's interesting because grief is, you have this relationship with this person that you and the person know. And then they die. And then in grief, it's like your relationship suddenly becomes open and like other people are like invited into it, but they don't know it. So they're saying, they're like talking to you about like how they relate to their mother, but like you relate to your mother. So it's almost like grief is this just wild thing, like outside of like all this stuff that we know, but it like, what else in life opens you up to come to someone and tell them how to feel or how it's going to be or how the relationship was? But grief does that. It's like, come on into my relationship with my mother and tell me about how it's going or how I should feel or what it's like. Uh, nobody would do that if she was alive.
1: Nobody would. No. One of the that. things, the best spot that you and I can be in as therapists is curious. right like if we get curious like curiosity is so open-hearted it's non-judgmental it really it's looking for I want to know you and understand you and so when I when I come to you from a curious place like tell me about yourself oh my goodness that's so interesting tell me more That, that the process that someone should feel can feel you know, we hope they feel is validated on the other side. Like, wow, she really got me. And the way I got you is like, not because we grew up in the same town, but just, I really deeply listened. I wanted to know. Right. (laughs) And what happens when our brains are jacked up, whether it's, I'm trying to take care for you because I love you and something terrible happened. And so I'm feeling awkward and anxious and defensive. My curiosity button, that little light bulb goes very dim. Interesting. Right. And so when I'm more defensive and I'm more worried and more anxious, I don't have online that ability to really validate you with much other than what you just described, my relationship with my mother or the the history of myself, right? Like that's really everything we know is based on our own experiences, Mm -hmm. but we can imagine all kinds of things. If we can bring our curiosity and our imagination online, that part of our brain happens to shut down when we are jacked up. So the reason I love questions Mm -hmm. is that it's more about body regulation. So I'm feeling super awkward. I'm going to ring your doorbell. I'm going to bring you the coffee cake I made you and I'm going to have to stand face to face with your loss. What am I going to do? And I think asking questions, have you been sleeping? Yeah. I brought you these. Are you able to eat at all? Is, Is eating okay? Have you been watching television? Does that help? Can you read? Mm-hmm. Is, is there anything that anyone's done that's been really helpful?
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, is
1: there anybody that's you've been talking to yeah. that's really, do you have a spiritual, you know, background in these things? And at any point, if you want me to get the hell off your porch, you <laughs> will just stop answering those questions. Right. Mm-hmm. And if we can really teach grievers, listen, you got to send the back. You know what I really... I know you mean that with love, but I really don't want to be asked about my spirituality. I'm just in a really dark place about it. Yeah. Yeah. And all of that helps us to just relax Mm -hmm. and show up for each other as humans.
2: Yeah. I love that. And like, I'm wondering if like people who are more like anxious or rigid or controlled, like if that curiosity isn't, like you said, like it's dim, like is that's something that they really access at all like is that something they've shut away because I have found that people like my friend who like called me every week like she just wanted to hear stories but like she was just like a curious open person but people who who never asked me questions about myself before like definitely weren't gonna start asking questions about my grief but I noticed that they're more like anxious or controlled people like have you found that to be
1: a connection, or is I'd that? I'd just- have to. I'd have to think about it. I mean, I do think anxiety in general—that you know—it activates your amygdala. Your amygdala enlarges. Okay. It cuts off oxygen to the other parts of your brain. So I think it would be fair to say mm-hmm. that anybody who's anxious in any situation is not in a creative, curious place because of how their brain is working. But I also there's a there's a concept around like the grief and loss conversation which I think some people think your grief is a problem. Yeah. And so, you know, it's sort of like, why, what is making you anxious about the fact that she's grieving all of this loss? So I think there's like a step behind, which is like, listen, grief is not a problem. It's just an energy that people go through. Everybody goes through it. You may live in Nashville and I may live in DC, but the territory that we're both going to cover together is grief and loss. Like we will all get there at some point in our lives. So it's not a problem and it is nobody's job to fix. It's not the griever's job to fix. It's not your job to fix. It's, it does not need to be fixed. So one, (laughs) right. So like, so Laura Perry, a friend of mine and a writer, she has this gorgeous, like I read it just every single day, this gorgeous description of isn't grief is, is not a problem and therefore does not need to be fixed. It just, and it takes as long as it takes. And so if everybody understood that, right, like puberty is not a problem. Your kid is all like knocking shit over because they're growing and their hair is all oily. And they're like, it's not a problem. It's not going to stay this way. Right? They're just a teenager. They're just going through something. Just like hug them and tell them, I know this is hard. We are not here to fix it. And anyone who thinks they can fix it is going to get themselves really tangled up in a place that does not feel good. And so that is one of the pieces that I think causes anxiety and that if we talked better as a population of listen that's not what this is
2: Mm -hmm. like I really
1: did feel like a problem
2: to some people like I'm ruining the get together with my sadness or I'm because I'm not coming or like I had to like bring up that awkward thing or like bring down the tone I feel like some people just wanted me to just like just don't be sad be better come over there was no space for me so then I wouldn't come and it was a problem and then it like it just kept building and ma- making the distance between us bigger. And I just really resented this fact that like, I felt like people were waiting me out yeah. to be fine. And then when I was going to be fine, they were going to come back. And so it gave me the notion that I had to change and I had to adjust to so much. I was not going to adjust anymore,
0: more, yeah. anymore.
1: That's where I lost friendships. I lost friendships where people were waiting me out, waiting for me to come I'm back to out. Out. And What I said to folks was like, nobody asked me when I was going back to normal after I had a baby. And why are you expecting that I'm going to go back to normal after losing my parents? And and I do still, I can hear the energy. I can hear it for you too. Like that still pisses me off a little bit. Cause I'm like, yeah. that's not the way this works. There is no going back. That house burnt down. Like there are some artifacts in this house from that life, but you know, and I'm sure you have this too. Cause you talk about grief and loss, but people are like, you know, should you be talking about it? And I'm like, yes, I should. Yes, I should. Yeah. Trust me, this is a part of my life, the same way my children are a part of my life. And I talk about them too. And it's not a problem. This is part of who I have become and I'm comfortable with it. When they are trying to support grievers is to know how, how are you energetically? So one of the things that parents of teenagers talk about a lot is how their teenager walks through the door and they're in a foul mood from whatever went on at school. And they walk in and they're like, what's for dinner? And you're like, spaghetti. And they're like, hey, it's spaghetti. And they run upstairs. And now you're in a foul mood because they came in and they just like snotted it all over you and you've got it on you. What I know about somebody who then is in a foul mood is that they are very porous emotionally, that people come in as storms and they are impacted by the storm. And so when you're talking about people who couldn't make room for you because you seemed like a bummer to them, I imagine that they don't have great boundaries around their energy. Like, why should it be a problem? And it's the same with like a toddler who's crying in the background. You know, if that is distracting your whole dinner, when a toddler is just being a toddler, part of what we know is that your energy is kind of porous, like you're kind of open. And so what I say to folks is, well, if your sister lost her husband and she is sad all the time, and that is a super bummer for you, I can understand that. Could you zip up your boundaries so that your sister can just be a bummer and that doesn't have to be a bummer for you because you- she should be able to, what'd you say?
2: People don't, like I can imagine people like, like- wanting to understand that but they don't know how like they've yeah. never connected with their energy or whatever.
1: <laughs> like yes what and so so one day when I'm like hey I'm gonna be in Nashville because I'm giving this talk you're gonna come on stage and we're gonna talk about what that's like and I do a lot of this energy work with people in session but I also talk a lot you know I, I do a lot of conversations with companies And part, that's part of what I'm talking about is like, okay, well, if you're a widget company, you're here to make widgets. There's been a lot of loss in your company, but your job is to do your job. How do we make room to kind of come in and put your emotions out on the table in some spaces, but then how do we gather them back? And also if somebody is in their lunch hour and their emotions are all over the table, how do you make sure that you sit at another table or you don't get some of their shit in your bag? And I think you're right. I think it's way more sophisticated, but I don't think it has to be that way. I think we could have this conversation about energy in a really important, healthy way that would benefit people across the board about their emotions. We just don't. You know, I
2: I know how as a therapist to do this, but like, it's like, I don't know how I know, but I know. And like, if something goes, like I know how to sit with someone, listen to them, hold their energy, hold their story, and then, like, go on to the next person. Sometimes things stay with me, and I guess what I would do is I would, like, talk about it, and yeah. then it wouldn't Like, I would, like, consult and do supervision about it. I know that I am doing something when I listen that, like, yeah. listen, I, my clients about this, like, listening is doing something. That's why you pay me, you know, one of the reasons. So, like, I know that I'm holding this and I'm listening to them and that's the doing and I've done it and I can like go on and do the next thing. So if people who are supporting grievers want to do something, they can listen, they can sit, they can hold energy, not make it about them and know that if that helps you, like know in your mind that you are doing
1: something. Oh, I love that. That's amazing. And what I would say is you, you know, I do a lot of listening. I also do a lot of treating because most of the folks who come in to see me have some trauma in their background. And again, if you think about grief as an energy and you feel like somebody's blue smoke is now sticking to you or it's coming into your body to have ways to say, actually, that's not mine. That doesn't belong to me. It needs to go back to its home where it is. I'm not going to be able to process it out. It's just going to weigh me down and be heavy that that kind of a conversation of moving energy is a little like, like out there, but it's actually not out there. Like we do it in all kinds of ways all the time. If somebody flips me off in traffic, I'm like, I don't know what that person's problem is, but I'm not going to be a part of it. They're in their car. I'm in my car, but there are those of us that are actually, you know, my youngest child, like he, he shifts with the energy of the people in the post office. Like he can accidentally get really hyper and excited or really anxious. And and it's not even his. And so we talk a lot about what color is that? Is that your energy? Cause he talks about his energy and colors. Like, is that your energy or is that somebody else's energy? And then can we just get it off?
2: Yes. I love that. And, you know, I think one of the reasons why I want to, you know, talk about this and share my story is because I'm, younger, but also I have found that, like, like I said, with the gas, like when you try to fight it, it's just like wearing you out. Like when we make room for those things, like when, when we get like, when we know our own energy and we like listen to them and we make that time and make that room, we can know if that's something else isn't our energy. Like grief is going to find yes. its way. In your life. It is going to get you. It is going to get its time with you. Don't yes. worry. It will. So like, why not give it some, give it some space, give it some property, like give it a little bit of room because like, it's either going to get you and your time when you're not expecting it, which it so might do anyway, or you're going to give it room and like befriend it. And there's no point of trying to like fight it back. And I think that knowing what's going on with you is really important and like giving it some space for me was like really important.
1: This conversation has been really gorgeous. You've given me a bunch of things to think about. And I really love the metaphor that you shared. I know that that's gonna um, stick with me. If people are interested either in working with you or knowing more about your work, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you?
2: Yeah, so my website, which is wingatecounseline.com and also like on Instagram. So I'm based in Nashville. I see people in person in Nashville. But I'm also licensed in Ohio and Tennessee.
1: Thank you so much for doing this. Thank yeah. you for reaching out. It was really an honor to talk to you, and I will be back in touch really shortly. Okay. Have a Let's great rest right. of your day, Shay. Take care. Bye.